Welcome to the Beyond Jiu-Jitsu podcast. I'm your co-host, Kieran Lefebvre, joined by Adam Childs. Hello, Kieran. What is up? This episode is 128, and we are talking all about John Danaher. What I learned from the great John Danaher. Yes. So uh, if you've seen some of the, the previous episodes, we've done what I learned from Lachlan Giles from mm-hmm. his seminar, what I learned from Mario Hayes, Craig yes. Jones. So. A couple of weeks ago, there was a, a John Denneher seminar. I did not go. Kieran went. So we're going to have Kieran talk about what he learned and then I will put it into analogies for everyone else to understand. <laughs> Brilliant. So, yeah, just as a what's to come, if you want to know what um, generally what the themes were for this seminar, it's uh, the seminar was on the 22nd of January. So as I mentioned, a week ago now, and it was in – Western Sydney, uh, Sydney West Martial Arts. And yeah, John was in Australia because he was visiting his mum for her birthday in Queensland. Mummy. And yes. yeah, so we but, went. Yep. Whoa, 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 hang whoa, on. Whoa, whoa, You're going too whoa, whoa. fast. We got to start in John Denneher fashion. Okay. So, so we'll spend the origins of the minutes. word John. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, these jokes are going to be coming thick and fast this episode. Uh, well, maybe slow and <laughs> deliberate. <laughs> slow and chunky, I don't know. Yeah. So uh, we're going to be talking about the concepts that he went over because there was a lot of conceptual learnings, as is John Danaher's style. I'll mention the techniques that we went over and some, obviously not all of them because it was a three-hour seminar plus an hour Q&A. Um, but I will be drawing out some key details that I think are really interesting. Uh, and – I do have notes on the questions, the key questions that he was asked during the Q&A. And some of those questions relate to what uh, New Wave Jiu-Jitsu as a team is going to be doing, some really interesting things about um, Marigali, uh, Jean um, Carlo, um, and also Gordon Ryan, of course. Does Gordon train there? Yeah, yeah, Gordon trains with Danaher. Holy shit. I think that's a new thing. Yeah, I'm not sure. It's cool. But before we do that, a little bit of housekeeping, a massive shout out to our patrons. We have another Patreon shout out in a while. So thank you for everyone that supports us on Patreon. You keep the show going. We don't take sponsors, but we do take patrons. <laughs> uh, a shout out to Mark, Ben, Andre, Aaron, David, Charles, William, Joey, JT, JP, and our OG Patreon, Nick. Yeah, thank you guys. It allows so us much. to buy us a cup of coffee. Yes. Once a month. (laughs) (laughs) Sensational. Yeah. Um, Much much appreciated guys. Thank you very much. Uh, Yeah. I'm looking forward to this episode because I, yeah, the seminar was a week ago and I did try to get zero information from Kieran and I have a few of my students went to this seminar. Uh, I tried to kind of get no information from them. So everything on this episode would be new to me. Mm. However, you know, was obviously hard to go a week training with these people without them, you know, saying like, oh man, look at this that he showed or even see them showing someone else. Mm -hmm. So I have gone over a bunch of stuff you guys did. And I think already I'm just more interested to hear about the conceptual stuff because it was funny when, when we were in the gym and did go over a couple of the techniques I don't want to throw anyone under the bus, but there was like one of the brown belts in the gym being like, oh, wow. Oh. And I'm like, dude, like I don't know how – I can't show you that. I've shown you that technique almost weekly for the yeah. past three years. How <laughs> how are you, A, not able to do it yet and, B, having your mind blown? Like, I mean, you know how to do that. 
Uh, but like you said, <laughs> like you said from the start, it was you said what you think I would have gotten out of it if I were to have gone to the seminar is not so much the techniques themselves, but more the way that John thinks about jujitsu. Definitely. And already from the little we've uh, conversed about the seminar, that's definitely what I found more interesting mm. because as a, you know, essentially for anyone who doesn't want to listen past five minutes, the seminar was on arm drags essentially, mm. uh, which – you know, there were some cool details in the arm drags themselves that you shared with me, but they weren't mind-blowing. It was more, you know, oh, he does it this way because of this yeah. or like he, you know, thinks about this technique for this reason. Yeah. This is why he thinks this is a good move and why he thinks this is a bad move. That's what I found more interesting. So 100%. I'm, you know that. Yeah. yeah. So I'm more looking forward to those sides of things. Hopefully yeah. you kept some in the back pocket. Definitely, definitely did. So let's start with that. Let's start with the concepts that he explored. So there was obviously in a four-hour period listening to John Danaher, there was a lot. There was a shitload. But I'm just going to go over some key concepts. So the theme of the day, there was two key themes, but they're sort of wrapped into, into one, if you will, which is why we did the arm drag. And the first is known as the Pareto principle or the 20, the 80, 20 rule is it's more colloquially known as. So, um, I always forget that it's the Pareto principle and I'm like Pareto, Pareto. And then so I just call it the burrito principle. The burrito principle. Yeah. Which also makes sense. It should be 80% filling. (laughs) 20% (laughs) wrap. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So for those that don't know, the Pareto principle is an economic principle that basically states that, for every output of a system, 80% of the output is based on 20% of the, the components. A more uh, concrete example, if we look at economics, because it is an economic principle, we could say that, um, and this is the example John used, he said he knows nothing about the Australian tax system, but he knows that approximately 80% of the tax would be paid by 20% of the taxpayers. So you can use this principle and extrapolate it out into all systems. It's like a naturally occurring distribution of all systems. Now, the reason that it's 80-20 is it doesn't need to be exactly 80, exactly 20. Some systems it's 90-10 or 95-5. And that still is a representation of the Pareto principle. It's basically that most of the output comes from the fewer components. Yeah, so to put it into jujitsu terms, to make it really simple, let's imagine there's only 100 jiu-jitsu techniques. Of all the jiu-jitsu techniques in the world, there's only 100 of them. You know, It's like, well, 80% of the successful, highly used, effective you know, techniques that you see would come from only 20 of those 100. Exactly. You know, so not to say the other 80 techniques aren't useful, mm-hmm. but you're, you're 80% of the time, you're going to see only those 20 techniques. Yeah. It's kind of if you put it into jujitsu terms. Exactly. And you can even extrapolate this in people do this in business. It's, it's, it expands, the concept expands outside of economics into all areas. But obviously John has taken this principle and applied it to accurately to jujitsu. And if you want to learn more, I read a book on the 80-20 principle uh, by Richard Koch called the 80-20 principle. Oh, so wow. Groundbreaking name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so is he, is he like an economist? I think. But is he? Like has this principle been around for Yes. So he's yeah, not the time. dude who coined it. Kosh. No, 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 no. Okay. It was Prado. Okay. Which is some economist in okay. I think like the eighties or some not shit, maybe some even Greek 
dude. Nah, fuck it. Anyway, um, <laughs> my, my knowledge is stretched here. But anyway, so the seminar was on arm drags. And the reason John chose arm drags is because in his words, it is one of the high percentage moves, which falls under the 20% of jujitsu moves that makes up 80, a part of the 80% of the results or the success in jujitsu. So just, just to clarify there, that's what, that's what he's talking about. Now, in terms of determining or defining a high percentage move, it's not just what is successful in competition. And the example would have, uh, that he gave is something along the lines of, if you look at ADCC before like 2013 or whatever, where does heel hooks fall into the, the top, top moves, right? It doesn't. But then you look at, 2018, where does heel hooks fall into the top moves? It's like top three. So statistical analysis is not a good way to determine necessarily or looking at trends is not a good way to determine high percentage moves in John's opinion. The way he does it, as you can imagine, is through a system that he's made. And it's through five, five, and, well, five and a half key categories. So these are the categories that, or the filters, if you will, that John puts through any sort of move that he's assessing to determine whether it is classified as a high percentage move. The first one. And hang on. Yeah. If anyone is going to get lost with these five, we had coincidentally the same brown belt <laughs> who, who had his mind blown by a technique he learned a decade ago, really struggled to understand these five things. And we had about four or five of us spent, I don't know, 10 minutes, At least 10 minutes trying to explain <laughs> it to him and he still didn't get it until I came up with the dumbest, what I thought was the most absurd. Is this the pizza analogy or something? Or? Pretty much, yeah, yeah. The most absurd analogy to try to get through to him and then he understood it, okay. which I, I'm, I'm not even backing my own analogy. But it's I, pretty bad. It, it's terrible. <laughs> but if for some reason this still makes no sense to you, okay. Okay, so the first category is the move. The, the move needs to be mechanically strong. And that makes sense, right? So if we look at a heel hook, a heel hook is very mechanically strong. If we look at something like, I don't know, maybe a wrist lock, not as mechanically strong. Yeah. So a wrist lock would not be a high percentage move, whereas a heel hook would be under that one category. The next, which is I think maybe your favorite of the list, is simplicity. It needs to be simple. doesn't mean that it's necessarily easy it just means that it needs to be simple. Something that is too complex, like, I don't know, some crazy inverts or, or what have you. They can be very good, particularly when performed by a specialist, but they're not necessarily high percentage for everyone. Yeah. Remember as well, guys, this is, this is a system that he's, he's designed to help decide what fits into the 80-20 Yes. So a crazy invert to crab ride to this, that, that, that guys like Levi and Mikey Musameshi and, mm. you know, the Mendez brothers did back in the day or whatever. Doesn't mean it doesn't work. It just means it's not necessarily going to fall into one of the one of the 20 moves that exactly. make up the 80. It, it exactly. might be move number 55 that mm. still works, but, yeah, it's not falling into the 80-20, the which is the filters that we're applying right now. Exactly. It's not to say complex, fancy shit doesn't work. Yeah. We're just looking at 80-20. Okay, so the next is availability. Now, this one requires a little bit of explaining. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> to, to a brown belt friend, it did. Yes, yes, it did. This is, this is the one that he struggled with. So if we take the filter of arm drag, because that's what the seminar was on, and that's how John 
explained this this uh this filter of you the filter of availability is every single grappling match without fail starts with some form of grip fighting so therefore grip fighting or hand-to-hand fighting at the start of a match whether it's on the feet whether someone pulls guard and you assume that grip fighting it is available in every single jiu-jitsu match the arm drag is available because you always start with grip fighting and if you for some reason don't know what an arm drag is you literally drag in their arm so it's a grip fight right yeah, terrible explanation of an arm drag, but yes. We're going to get into it. We'll, we'll get into it. But, but yeah. therefore, if you filter the arm drag as a move through the availability filter, it is always available. An example of something that is not always available could be something along the lines of, um, I don't know, like a, a Kimura from um, North-South or something like that, where it's not always going to be available. If you're in that position, it will be available, but it's not always readily available. Yeah, yeah, you know, another if we're another example might be, you know, similar to arm drags, but if we're talking about gi fighting, obviously the seminar was was no gi, but if you're talking about gi fighting, similar to well arm drags are readily available because, you know, there's always some arm to arm fighting. Mm. Be a similar concept with, you know, techniques that require sleeve grips because mm. the sleeve is always there or or techniques that require a collar grip, like the collar is almost always accessible when you're exactly. fighting the gi, you know, getting a collar grip. Mm-hmm. So things that are readily available, whereas, you know, a drawstring grip is available, but it's not readily available because it's behind them, you exactly. know? So like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the next is the outcome. It's it's all well and good to have a set of moves or a move that is, you know, mechanically strong, simple, available. But if the outcome isn't favorable versus the risk and reward, which funnily enough is uh, category number five, then it might not necessarily fall into a high percentage move. Is the outcome a submission? Is the outcome a guard pass? What is the outcome of said move set? Which, you know, makes sense. And the fifth is compatibility with other moves and the risk level of the moves. So John would not consider a move, a high percentage move, if when it fails, you get submitted or when it fails, you will automatically land in uh, an inferior position, like get your back taken, for example. Like it's guaranteed to get your back taken if this move set fails. So he talks about these high percentage moves always have some backup plan that is very robust. Yeah, so let me give you a very concrete example of the opposite of this okay. filter. And remember, this filter that doesn't make any sense if you're not combining it with the 80-20 rule, right? Yeah. We're looking at techniques that fit in the 20. So a perfect example of what would not make it through this filter would be a buggy choke, Yeah. right? Because – it's not readily available. You're not always side control on the bottom, mm-hmm. right? So that already doesn't make it through that filter. Mm-hmm. You could argue it's, I mean, even to some degree it's compared to other techniques, it might be considered complicated, but compared to others, it's also incredibly simple to apply. Mm-hmm. But anyway, it's not readily available. If you looked at it like the, the risk reward factor, if you looked at it from, oh, I'm offensively going to do a buggy choke rather than, oh, well, 
I already got my guard pass, so I'll try it. Mm. If you imagine someone went into a match with the strategy of I'm going to buggy choke them, Horrible. look at the risk versus reward. Yeah. If it doesn't work, your side control on the bottom. So that's essentially the the last filter that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, if it fails, are you then does a does a failed whatever guarantee that you're going to get your guard passed or something yeah. like that? You know, and if we go back to looking at arm drags. A failed arm drag. Of course, there's always counters. You could you'll see a highlight like of a redrag. Yeah, yeah, some dude who went for an arm drag and ended up getting armbarred. Or of course, you always see shit. But you know, on on paper, just out of a textbook, a failed arm drag doesn't result in getting your guard exactly. pass, or it just results in a failed arm drag and yeah. you know things being neutralized. Right? It's the same as a, a failed snap down just usually results in you two both being standing. Of course, can they counter your snap down by like shooting a, double, a blast yeah. double? Yeah, of course, but that's like, you know, we're taking it to a whole nother level. Mm -hmm. So hopefully that helps explain like the five rules, which uh, were, what was it again? The mechanically, mechanically strong, strong, simple, simple available, available, the outcome, mm -hmm. and it's risk versus reward and it's connection into other systems and techniques. Exactly. And if you look at Gordon Ryan, he falls particularly the compatibility with other moves. You see it all the time when he competes. Something fails, he launches straight into something else every yeah. single time. Doesn't necessarily mean that the something else is going to be successful, but he has his systems all connect. All of his all of his move sets all always connect. Yeah. He always has a backup plan. And if a technique makes it through those five filters, it should, in theory, fall into the twenty. Exactly. Right, of the 80 It's a high rule. percentage. It's a high percentage move. Right. And it's it's like just a more advanced version of, you know, being referring to the to Hodge's comments on the Lex Friedman podcast quite a few times recently. <clears throat> but it's just like a more advanced version of, you know, Hodge's approach of saying just because it's simple doesn't mean it's easy. Just because it's yes. basic doesn't mean it's easy. Like, look at um Look at, fuck, man, I never stay up to date with the fancy Japanese names they use for stuff, but essentially a butterfly guard sweep. What do they call it? Sumigeshi or whatever. Yeah, sumigeshi. <laughs> right? You look at all their variations of, of a butterfly sweep, essentially, mm -hmm. which if it connects is a butterfly sweep, but look at how much Gordon uses that to enter into the saddle or enter into mm -hmm. a, a shoulder crunch yeah. sweep or into, you know, like into an armbar, into all yeah. those sorts of things, into an underhook, whatever, right? It's so a butterfly guard sweep on its own, <clears throat> excuse me, is very, very simple, very basic, but it doesn't mean it's easy mm. to execute at a high level against another high level grappler. And this is like a more advanced version of that type of well, just because it's simple doesn't mean it's easy. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Um, so that was the overarching two key principles. So the he went over the, the filter. <laughs> of whether or not something's a high percentage move. And the reason he wanted to run it through that filter base, was based on the 80-20 principle or the Pareto distribution, if you will. So next I'm going to talk about some of the techniques and try my best to explain some of the, the techniques. I'm not going to tell you how to do an arm drag, but I'm going to assume that you've seen it before and know the basics on how to do an arm drag and then share with you some of the, the key insights that I had personally when, when John was teaching. So the first one that I want to point out is where John recommended to actually arm drag from. 
Now he mentioned that a lot of the time an arm drag is taught by you, you grab their wrist, same side grabs the same side wrist, and then you reach across their body, grab their elbow and drag from there. However, John mentioned that this in terms of a lever gives you the most leverage, but he pointed out that you got to look at your grip. He said that the, the sacrifice in grip is not worth the improvement in the leverage for going at the end of the lever, which is the upper arm, right? So if you imagine the upper arm as a lever, you grab the elbow, that's the end of the lever. Technically you have the most leverage. However, because of your shitty grip, it's better to go deep into the armpit and always arm drag from wrist deep into the armpit. Now, the reason is it's a lot harder for them to pull their arm out and just shut down your arm drag, right? So you will see at high level people arm dragging from the elbow, but you also see a lot of Danaher students arm dragging from the armpit. And I can speak from just drilling at personal experience that it is very effective. Yeah, and I mean, the also like attempting to arm drag from the armpit, there's kind of no lose factor to it like like you mentioned the the trade-off in extra leverage is negated by the lack of grip anyway Mm -hmm. but you know if you go for an arm drag in the armpit you can still catch them on the way out like on the tricep or the elbow yeah right It's, it's kind of like when you know you look at a striker and they'll be taught, you know, to punch through the bag or whatever. And then, I mean, you look at it and it looks like they're just punching the bag, but they're trying to punch through it. So you might even see someone arm drag at the tricep or the elbow, but they may have been, you know, trying to arm drag at the armpit, mm. right? Like what's, what's the negative effect of trying to over, it's not like you can like over, it'd be weird to think you could overcommit. And imagine if someone went for an arm drag, they're like, I'm going past the armpit and they just turned and gave their back. Right? <laughs> like, I mean, yeah, so there's yeah. really no downside to to going for this essentially wrist deep in the mm. – it's almost like you could almost think about it like this. If it helps you like for a mental cue for you, don't even call it an arm drag. Call it a shoulder drag. Yeah. Like reach for the back of their shoulder. It's pretty much what you're doing. You reach under all the, the way armpit. through, under yeah. the armpit, almost on the back of the shoulder and, and dragging yeah. from there. So this concept – well, this technique rather, this That's detail. That's it. I'm, hang on. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Copyright instructional coming out called Shoulder Drag. (laughs) I'm getting rich, baby. (laughs) Uh, Featuring John Danaher. Yeah, yeah, so so this uh, shoulder drag, if you will, uh, is applicable from standing. It's applicable from a seated guard, like a butterfly guard, and also from uh, turtle, attacking turtle as well. So those are the three sort of key areas that we we did different variations of the arm drag in. Now – yeah, we did we did arm drags from the standing seated guard and um, when the opponent is on the knees versus when the opponent is actually on their feet standing and to to get to the back in turtle. Now the different all the different variations basically fall under they're trying to achieve the same thing, and the concept is to beat the elbow. Now this is this was really interesting that. Take, just take standing, for example, that like stand up, you, you know, you're standing with the opponent, both of you standing and you're arm dragging, you're trying to beat their elbow. You're trying to get around their elbow somehow. All of the different arm drag variations achieved beating the elbow. And one of the key sort of uh, ways they did that or the different variations, I should say, and how they did that was due to head posture. And this is the same seated. Now, 
that was really interesting because I I haven't really seen an emphasis on the the head posture in an arm drag in this way. And there, I'll give you an example. The, the two key variations for the standing arm drag. One was with inside head position and one was with outside head position. And both of them, both of them were equally as effective, but they achieved beating the elbow through two different head postures. So I found that quite interesting. What do you mean by inside head position? Inside of what? Inside, like literally your head on their neck. Opposed to outside, it would be where? Um, let me, let me think. Yeah, like so behind their, behind, the, behind their shoulder on their back. So right, into right. back almost. Right, right, so right. those were the two, the, yep. the inside and outside. And both of them um, were from going the opposite side. One was your you know dominant side. One was your not dominant side based on your opponent's reaction. Um, yeah, it was, it was quite interesting. It's, it's, it's kind of hard to explain over audio, but yeah. So outside head position, your, your head was pretty much on the back of their shoulder slash back. Inside head position, your head was literally on their neck. Yeah, so it's kind of like... Uh, Let's give some other ways to think about it if it if it helps people understand. If you look at if you look at wrestlers, it's kind of almost what they're trying to do is get to a position that would be if an arm drag and a Russian tie had a baby. That's kind of like yeah, the position 100%. that you get into. So you almost have uh, you know your shoulder behind their shoulder mm-hmm. and your head like next to their head or in the in the crook of their neck, mm-hmm. right? That's kind of the the position that you can get to. And you and keep the grip on their, their on, armpit. Yeah. That's right, yeah. yeah. And then your other hand can reach around their back exactly. or whatever. If you get there, you've already beat the elbow. You've yes. beat the shoulder, which is even a step past the elbow, yeah. obviously. And if you get there, you've essentially – already beaten that do-si-do sort of thing that can happen with arm drags where you're both just running around around in circles. John didn't talk about that. And when you get to that position that that you're describing where you you have almost like that meat hook on their their arm, your your head's like behind their their neck sort of thing and you have their far hip, he said then to walk through the opponent. So you're walking through them. Kind of like what you were saying, how you, you, you know, boxers are taught or strikers are taught to punch through the back. You use the same concept, but moving through your opponent and the amount of control you have is, is crazy. It's, it's nuts. And then you can even take your opponent in the same direction that the feet are pointing. And that's how you can take them from standing to, to start breaking them. Yeah. Start breaking them down, get them to a knee. And then there's different techniques that he taught from those positions, uh, which were, which were quite interesting. Yeah. One of the, one of the interesting things that, uh, you you guys were saying that he covered as well was essentially that he is not a fan of the the front headlock position. Yes, as in the position, not from standing, not like a snap down front headlock. The position, of, which I guess he technically sort of the same, but more talking about imagine if you've sprawled on a double leg, yeah, and you're on that that position where you could attack an anaconda or something. And it was interesting because. He essentially said that it's the sort of position that in a country like Australia, you can get away with staying there and attacking. But in the US where there's so many good wrestlers and, you know, today there's more wrestlers transitioning over to jujitsu and tomorrow there'll be even more and the next day there'll be even more. So that front headlock position when you're on the bottom for a wrestler, they're so good at getting out of that position. So, uh, you know, he essentially said it's not that great 
from a jujitsu point of view, but also that, you know, started thinking about how culturally different countries you can get away with different shit. Yeah. However, I will say that, you know, one of his current students, like, you know, Giancarlo Bordoni has got a lot of really good front headlock controls and a very uh, untraditional guillotine variation that, that he does from there. And so, you know, it kind of leaves me thinking, all right, well, maybe similar to the 80-20 in the sense that and might not fit through your filter, but I don't think it necessarily means it's a completely terrible position. Mm. You know, yeah, it's got one of his current students, ADCC champion, who does really well in that position. But anyway, I just thought it was interesting thinking about how in some countries you're going to get punished for something that you wouldn't somewhere else. That is interesting. That is funny. And he did he did sort of mention that about uh, Australia having almost no wrestlers or not really a wrestling program, so we're not going to get punished. He, he did mention that. And just to expand on, on that a little bit, he, he did spend some time asking the audience about uh, what we think that the number one takedown was when he analyzed freestyle wrestling at a high level. And I'll just give it to you. The number one takedown was a single leg takedown. And then he expanded on that and said, okay, so what's what do you think the number two was? You heard the typical responses like, oh, double leg, blah, blah, blah. He's like, no, nah, double leg wasn't even in the top five or whatever. Um, so the number two was actually the the um, sit-through go-behind. Yeah, from from, from a, failed a failed single leg. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yes. So, uh, so in other words, that's how good wrestlers are in exactly. that, uh, uh, dealing with that position. 100% from the front headlock. So you got sprawled on, you're in that sort of front headlock position, and the number two um, takedown was, was that response from a failed shot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it'll almost be like, you know, oh, what's the number one <clears> – <throat> I don't know, submission from close guard. Oh, armbar, what's the number two? Oh, triangle. Mm. You know, like when someone yeah, defends an armbar, yeah, exactly. you know, connect the two. And, and that, funnily enough, links back to one of the filters, which is compatibility with other moves. Yeah. So uh, anyway, the the next key detail that I wanted to to bring up that I found really interesting was this armpit grip that he likes from Turtle. So piggybacking off the front headlock. He doesn't like the front headlock because it can be countered with the with the um, sit-through go-behind. So what he likes instead is this armpit grip. Now what he does, imagine that you're in, that someone's in turtle in front of you, and instead of being in a front headlock position with your arm like, you know, through, through like next to their neck sort of thing through, you take both arms on top and cup their armpits. So you basically create little, hooks into their arm, like T-Rex arms. Little armpit. T-Rex yeah. claws. Their little T-Rex claws hooks into their <clears> armpits. <throat> Now, the pros and cons are, as you already mentioned, the, the pro is that it's more control and you, you cannot sit through from there or you have – it's a lot more difficult to sit through because they can't reach you. They can't, um, you know, they can't sit to their guard. There's lots of things that are neutralized from the, the opponent's perspective and you neutralize when you take that armpit grip. But the drawback is there are no submissions. There are no, there are no anacondas or dust chokes or anything like that or – or head arms or anything from that, obviously that cut position. So what you're doing is you're controlling your opponent so that you can then take their back. And then he showed an arm drag back take sequence from there. And just very quickly, if you can't follow along, don't worry about it, but you you uh, use a thumb grip to trap their or block their tricep. You reach under for that, elbow, um, for that uh, wrist deep 
arm drag position on their armpit that I mentioned previously, and then you scuttle your way around to their back. Yeah. Yeah. The I tried that little T-Rex claw mm. position. And uh it's funny, right? The the limitations that particular, you know, bodies and body types have on themselves. So I couldn't actually do it, not because I'm too big or anything, but because of the surgery on my left elbow. Ah, your compression. I can't, like, I mean, I can bend my elbow. Like I can just get my thumb to my shoulder, but I kind of, you know, it was like really gimpy. Like I didn't really have Mm. any control with it. Like I couldn't compress my elbow enough on my left side. Yeah, you got to keep them tight to your body, yeah. to be in that position, yeah, right. So, like, I, like, I could do it in a drilling fashion, but in terms of it actually being able to be there and have load on it, as in have my weight on top of my opponent, my elbow couldn't hack it. Yeah, so, right. you know, quite funny how sometimes you just doesn't matter, even if it's the number one guaranteed to get you the gold medal move, you might not physically be capable to do it because of certain limitations on your body, whether it's a flexibility limit, well, flexibility, arguably you can work on, but you know, uh, not a good example of Mikey in the gym. Okay. Not an example of someone who's going off and, you know, fighting worlds, but you know, Mikey's had two hip replacements and he's still very fit and healthy and active, but physically like he's, he's, if you imagine someone doing a groin stretch, his knees are pretty much near his ears, not mm. because of a lack of flexibility in his groin or hips or glutes or anything, but that's how far the, the, the metal joint in his hip goes. Mm. Like, it, it, you know, going further, trying to make his leg externally rotate further, it's like trying to bend a bit of metal. Like it physically doesn't literally. go. <laughs> yeah, literally. Like, you know, so there's certain moves that he physically uh, – there's nothing he can do. Mm. There's no flexibility, no drugs. There's nothing he can do to be like, well, my leg doesn't bend that way. Yeah. Like I can't do it. And, you know, obviously that's an extreme example, but, you know, even these little things. So it was hard for me to feel the benefits of it. Obviously I'm not who am I to disagree with, with you know, the likes of John Denneher and I'm not disagreeing with him. I'm just saying it was interesting how when I tried tried to do it, I was like, oh, yeah, I can see, but I don't think I could ever actually do this because it's fucking hurting my elbow and I can't really put weight there. So I'm just kind of really precarious, but, yeah. It's funny. Uh, Today I actually released a video, uh, a vertical video. Oh, I saw on elbows. You're like the only person I follow That's on great. social media. <laughs> I just scroll through your, see the same ones every day. Yeah. So through. I released a, a video on like, oh, elbow pain from jiu-jitsu, try this mobility drill. And then I got a comment on, uh, I think the TikTok version. And it's like, do you know anyone that can't straighten their elbow from jiu-jitsu? I'm like, oh yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I told him like, yes, my coach uh, had bone spurs removed from his elbow. And he's like, fuck, that doesn't sound good. <laughs> this is not looking good for me. <laughs> yeah, someone else, another student was, um, I can't remember who it was, but they were saying they were struggling to extend and compress their elbow. Yeah. And I said, well, you know, it could be a muscular thing, but well, you, you know, could be fucked. <laughs> yeah. There could be a physical limitation in your, in your elbow that's, yeah. that's stopping it from, from happening. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, anyway, like everyone, I think you don't even have to get to black belt to, to have certain parts of your body and limitations on mm. your body and, you know, even if you're fit and healthy and never had a serious injury or a surgery or something, everyone is going to have 
a particular problem area. For me, it's, you know, it's my knees and I think it always will be their knees. You've got one of my other students, Alex, has got atrocious shoulders, you know. Uh, he's had two shoulder surgeries and even now, like, the range in his shoulders is appalling. Some people just are prone to back issues and, you know, you meet, unfortunately, you meet sometimes 30-year-olds, 20-year-olds even with a slip disc in their back, even though they're fit and healthy, like, you know, not even necessarily from a traumatic injury. Everyone's going to have their problem areas and limitations in certain stuff. So you can either find the good thing about jiu-jitsu is there is not any one particular move that you, bro, like, oh, if you can't do this, you don't even bother turning up, right? There's so many different, you know, moves that work. There's not one golden goose. And even, even if there were a golden goose, technique or move there's lots of different ways to do it exactly so you can you know you can make shit work totally so i'll I'll just end on uh because there was a lot more that i wanted to go through but i want to move on to some of the other sections here one final one that i have to mention is let me start by saying that lately a lot of the top guys have been shitting on the seatbelt just saying that the the seatbelt position uh like you're on their back you have you know seatbelt um grips that it's shit and you shouldn't go for it because you know slip off. you slip off or it's just it's inferior. So that's what sort of the the rhetoric in some circles has been the the high level. Yeah, so people are doing like power halves and yeah, stuff. And, and basically throwing the baby out with the bathwater and saying, "No, nah, don't do the seatbelt anymore. It's it sucks." John didn't say that. John likes the seatbelt and said that the seatbelt is a good uh, position, but he 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 brought in in the John way a system to it, right, or a very clear definitive this is when you should do it this is when you shouldn't and you know that's what i like about john star but anyway so he mentioned that if the opponent has their knees on the mat the seatbelt is the superior um generally speaking when you're on their back or in a turtle the seatbelt is the superior grips so you can use the seatbelt go for it however if they are not if their knees are off the mat as soon as their knees come off the mat into like a tripod position you have to ditch the seatbelt you have to go for something like a power half Nelson or for double unders until you can get a power half Nelson. So I found that um, definition or that uh, the categories really, really interesting. So it's a don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. The seatbelt is still a good position, a, a good control and a good way to take the back, just not when they're in a tripod. Yeah. If you're at risk of slipping off mm. then yeah, double unders power half or something like that. But you know, even if you still don't agree with the seatbelt, well, like use your power half to take the back and mm. then switch to what? A, a seatbelt, seat exactly. Right? It's, still, it's still a grip and control that you use once you're on the back. Yeah. So, you know, it's, you know, very difficult to go from a power half straight to a rear naked choke without <laughs> passing through a seatbelt yeah. first, right? Yeah. So even if, you're, even if you're not a fan of a seatbelt as a means of taking the back, whether the, your opponent's knees are on the mat or not, a seatbelt control, the grip, how to use a seatbelt in terms of back retention yeah. is still essential like, because it's, it's the – it would be – yeah, it makes up the majority of your upper body control and, and grips when you're on someone's back. Look at the elite levels like – Gordon Ryan, does he use a seatbelt? Yeah. yeah. All the fucking time. All the fucking time. Look at like, I mean, Giancarlo, you know, I think finished most of his fights in ADCC by rear naked choke on yeah, the back. by the seatbelt. You know, and um, I, you know, I haven't gone through every single back take from all his matches, you know, 
that has a really good ability of breaking people down from that back exposure position mm. and you know whether he used a, a power half or a seatbelt to take the back is not the point I'm making like once he's on the back you fucking people use seatbelts bro like, yeah yeah 100% they save lives <laughs> seatbelts save lives yeah a buck of your seatbelt yeah and then yeah, oh, I'm not gonna yeah. Anyway, I was going to say something else. Carry on. <laughs> <laughs> so there, there were a lot more, like obviously, but you know, if you want more details, go do his seminar. Go do the seminar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so next was really interesting. He, we actually went over time by over half an hour uh, in the in the seminar, and that was in the the Q and A section. So he, we spent a long time um, in in Q and A, and I've picked out a couple of questions that people asked that I I think that. Uh, you will all find quite interesting. Um, so I'm going to go through maybe a little bit more rapid fire onto some of the questions that were asked and his responses. Now, these are not all technique. I took out all the technique ones and it's more concept concepts and some um, new wave jujitsu and what, what the team's doing, the likes of, uh, you know, Gordon Ryan and, and such. Okay, so the first one was, the first question is kind of a suck up question in my opinion. It was like, how do we learn from your ins- ins- uh, instructionals, John? Uh, so he spent probably 15 minutes talking about the history of his instructionals, how the the deal with him and BJJ fanatics like came about and blah, 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 and how he like revolutionized instructionals. Uh, but the, the whole point is John is aware that his instructionals are very, very long. And he's aware that some people, if they try and sit down and watch it in one hit, will get bored out of their tits. And he said, don't do that. Jiu-jitsu shouldn't be boring. Don't watch my instructionals until you get bored. He literally said, what you should do. But I'm only two minutes in, John. (laughs) (laughs) He literally said that you should watch the instructional, and this goes for any instructional, until you get one key insight. Once you get one key insight, take it away and apply it to your training. Once, if if you like get unstuck or or it doesn't work, go back to the instructional and review it. Once you've mastered that, watch until you get another key insight. So these should be a library. He keep he kept yeah, this, bringing up this term library a lot. It's a it's a great piece of advice because I've always I don't want to say it. no. I was going to say I've always made fun. No, that's not true. I've never understood the compulsion that some people have to own absurd amounts of instructionals. Mm. Like uh, because let's take one. Let's take that exact thing that John said. Mm and apply it to one of his many instructionals. I don't know how many, how many key bits of information as an average oh my God, blue so or much. purple belt would you get out of one of his instructionals? Eight like hours long, fucking, thousands, man. Right? To think that, and of course, like jiu-jitsu is very dynamic and we get bored of certain p- positions and techniques and new problems arise, so we look for a new solution. So all of a sudden that half-guard problem that his – kicking our butt in training well now his back taking dvd is you know not at the forefront of my mind of a problem i need to solve so i guess from that point of view i understand having multiple instructionals but what i'm trying to say is i've never understood people who just have so many because one instructional man is like easily you know a year's worth of information and training and and if you did took one of John's instructionals and did exactly what he said, watch till you get a key detail, go Apply away, put detail. it into your training. Mm. If, if, if it doesn't work, go back, watch it again. Yep. Once it succeeds in training, move on to the next watch one. again till you get yep. another key detail. I guarantee you there'll be a whole bunch of people that 
it like it's taken them months to get through the first hour of of an instructional, right? So people so, don't do that. People people want no. instant gratification. They want instant results. And that's not how jujitsu works. No, and that's not how ju- instructionals work, right? How many people do you know that have watched like ten plus instructionals, and then you ask them for a key detail in the fifth one? They, they're no, they can't, yeah, because they didn't consolidate it. Yeah, and it's not even about drilling; yeah. it's just applying. Yeah, and they, you know, exactly, and they, you know, that there's just an overload of information, so it just kind of goes in and out. You know, it's like exactly. just, you know, yeah. it's like just reading a million a million books and then being expected to recite every single one of them, opposed to having one or two books and reading them over and over and over and over again. Exactly. Exactly. So literally he said, watch in short bursts, look for insights. Once you have one, stop. Take it to training, come back when it fails, or once you've mastered it, for another insight. It should take you twelve, like six to 12 months, realistically, following this method correctly, if you're around that you know, blue, white, blue, pebble belt level, to get through one of John Danaher's like 10 hour instructionals. Yeah. Obviously the more experienced you are, the less likely exactly every detail is going to be a new piece of information mm-hmm. or a key detail for you. Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, like if, if depending on your experience, fuck man, so much information in there. Yeah. Yeah. So next question. Next question was how, how do you structure your lessons? This interests me a lot because yeah. I've always said, I can't watch his instructionals. They're, they're too painstaking for me. Mm. And, you know. Are you watching them in short bursts? <laughs> but um, I think it could also be because I'm, I'm not saying I know that much about jiu-jitsu, but obviously I'm not going to, you know, if, he's, if it's a back-taking one and he's explaining the reasons why one hand goes on top of the other hand mm. on a seat belt, like, and he spent 20 minutes explaining that, like that is not a detail I need. So, yeah. you know, that's why I'm perhaps that could be a reason. Maybe anyway, the wrong stuff. I've always said I would be interested in doing one of his just generic classes at, a, at his gym. Cause I'm sure his regular classes aren't as drawn out as in his instructionals. No. Otherwise every class would be fucking six hours long. Yeah. So I've always been interested in what it would be like to just do a, day-to-day class of his. And if it's anything like his seminars, they're super concise. Like the man can speak. We, we know that. But if you only have interacted or seen John Danaher through his instructionals, and again, they're like eight hours long and designed that way on purpose, then you may get a warped perception because his seminars were, you know, it was kind of like multiple classes back to back to back. They're very, very concise. So the way he structures his – well, the first thing he said is he, he does not do warm-ups, no warm-ups. If he's teaching white belts, he might take them through warm-ups to teach them basic positions and, and, and movements, right? And he, he was very clear with that. Like white belts need to learn basic movements. So therefore, you do that in the warm-up. However, he said any, anyone above blue belt, you need – like you should know how to warm yourself up. And he said warm-ups achieve two things depending on the warm-up. And this is pretty much across the board in all jiu-jitsu academies around the world. They're either too difficult, like wrestler-style warm-ups, and people take pride in how difficult their warm-ups are for some stupid reason, and you spend 30 minutes doing push-ups and fucking whatever else and burpees and, and just getting smashed for 30 minutes, and then you're tired. Or they have the same 10 movements over and over and over again, and they're just boring as fuck. And or the result of both of those styles of warm-ups, either you come to – the lesson portion 
either very fatigued or bored out of your brain. And he said, those two minds, those two states are the two worst states possible for learning. And I found that super interesting. Yeah. I, um, I, I agree and disagree with, with that. I, because it really does depend who, who you're teaching. And I think the, yeah. the logistics of the average person running their gym, you know, if you would ask me this question while I was still living in Brazil or if I had just moved back from Brazil, I would have been like, yeah, I 100% agree because I trained and worked and lived at a full-time competitor's yeah. gym, right? A similar similar where, style gym as John's, right? Yeah, where like prior to the class, I didn't need a warm-up because I had already spent the last two hours drilling technique in my free time. Yeah. You know, like a, the last thing I needed was a warm-up and I was about to go into doing like 10, 10-minute 10 rounds. So mm. I didn't need to do a warm-up for conditioning mm. because my conditioning was about to come. You, you know, like a warm-up made no sense. Mm. But I think for the average gym and the average gym owner and the types of people, you know, the weekend warriors or, you know, the 45-year-old dad who, um, you know, has got three kids but wants to start jujitsu, and, you know, like I think whether you were going to say it or not now but I've heard you say, you know, he expects his athletes to, to, warm, up to warm themselves yes. up or yes. arrive warmed up. That doesn't apply to the, you know, the nine-to-five banker who mm. barely makes, you know, runs in the door two minutes before class with still in his business suit. Like, like he didn't have time to warm up. Like, I mean, you know, so I, I, ag- I agree and disagree. I mean, I try to, <coughs> excuse me, I try to keep the warm ups in the gym in, you know, unless I'm intentionally wanting to fatigue people. I never f- intentionally fatigue students and then teach complicated technique, mm. but sometimes I'll intentionally fatigue because, a lot of the <laughs> a lot of the people in the gym are just really soft, right? And if I don't punish them, they never push through like barriers. physical barriers, yeah. right? A lot of my students, uh, you know, when I'm wanting them to be training hard and rolling hard, they're mid-roll, you know, giggling. And it's like, let's fucking go, bro. Let's train. So sometimes I like- Well, the, uh, the, my favorite is the stall before. Like you- you, you slowly find a partner, the time's still ticking, like yeah, the timer went God, off. You're like, oh, hey, man, like, you ask him a question, any injuries? And then you ask yeah. him a question or something. And then like a minute and a half, two minutes in the round, okay, let's start. Yeah. And then you fuck around, establish a guard for the first 30 seconds. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're the But worst. I think like, you know, uh, a warm-up with a bit of joint mobility is never a waste of time. I agree. You know? And sometimes, you know, Sometimes you would have seen this. I'll just go, okay, guys, like just give Warm me one set of yep. hip escapes, technical stand-up, yeah, yeah, shoulder yeah. roll and back roll. Or you're you even, or you're even go like, f- like uh, warm yourselves up for the next five minutes. Yeah. Particularly if it's comp class. You're yeah. like, fucking sort yourselves yeah. out. We're, we're about to start. Yeah. Uh, but he, he did go on to say like to apply a little bit more context. He said that he uses his drilling at the start as a warm-up. So he'll start with lighter drills to yeah. warm up, which is what we do as well. So it's it, it's not that he never does a, a warm up. It's just his warm ups are always technique based to to prepare for the the yeah. class. But even like if you stop and think about it, some of the warm up movements that we do are essentially yes. technique drills. Like think about inverts. like the inverts yeah. or the partnered hip escapes. Yep. You know, sitting up on the, the single, single leg. leg. Yep. Like these are uh, these are techniques that have. Uh, have been extrapolated into a warm up, mm-hmm. you know? So mm. yeah. 
Anyway, yeah, so agree and I don't think disagree is the, the, the right word. I, I agree with him, the but there's a, yeah. Yeah, totally. And then now to get into the meat of it, how he structures his class in classic John Danaher style. He has a system. Yeah. So his classes are based on three simple questions. Oh, <laughs> this is classic Danaher. I loved it, dude. I had the biggest smile on my face the whole time. Anyway, these are the three questions when he's teaching a move. Why is it, why is this important? Why are what we learning? Why is it important? And this can be linked back to what we spent 20 minutes on at the start, the 80-20 the principle, the Pareto's principle, and the high percentage moves. So why is this move important? How are we going to increase our understanding of this move? And finally, and this he said this is for his more advanced students, the likes of Gordon Ryan, et cetera, how are we going to become the best in the world at the technique. So every class, he needs his students to be able to answer those three questions or have an understanding of those three questions with the with the technique or the move that he's teaching. Do you think sometimes it's ever just as, as simple as, uh, so what was it, why? Why uh, is this important? Yeah, what was the next one? How are we going to increase our understanding? So the technical yeah. side of it. And how are we going to become the best in the world at the technique? Okay. Do you think it's ever, um, yeah, so so how are we going to increase our understanding? Obviously, like, you know, by learning the move and its applications and mm -hmm. its pros and cons. Yeah. How are we going to become the best of the world at it? Yeah, mm -hmm. definitely, you know, the more finer, higher level details of mm -hmm. it. But do you ever think it's just as simple as, you know, why why is this important? Well, because side control on the bottom sucks dick. You know, that's yes. why it's very important because I don't want to be here. Yeah. You know, like I wonder if it's ever just as simple no, as that. Or I wonder right. if he's yeah. just like, but why? Because <laughs> <laughs> oh, my dad didn't love me. <laughs> 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 yeah, seriously. No, but I, but I what, fucking why love it. Why is side control a bad position? Yeah, why? that's what he would do. <laughs> if he was sitting here right now, he'd be like, yes, Adam, but why? <laughs> Explain to me why. No, but. Fucking brilliant. I can but put your rashy hoodie on and fuck off. I, I almost, <laughs> I almost, almost wore him. a rash guard to this episode. Oh, did you? Yeah, oh, I, was shit, going, you I was going to. Wait, you should have told it. me. You should have, we should have Yeah, I was going to, but I totally forgot oh, about space shit, that space. That would have been funny. It would be hilarious, but I ruined it. And so. we could have brought our own bum bags. <laughs> yeah, and, yes, yes, yeah. that is the fashion. Uh, so, uh, like, of, you know, he's some some of his. I've never met him, never been to one of his seminars or anything. I shook you his know. hand. <laughs> <laughs> um, so obviously, he appears to have some quirks that are very low hanging fruit to make fun of. Yes. But obviously, like the man, you know, yeah, he's yeah. fucking brilliant. Like, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so then, like, did he mention? So you know, he, he did. But go then into did more he detail, say? Yeah. yeah okay, but like. So no warm up, yeah, or, no warm -up. Some, or some drills as the answer warm -up. the three questions, and then he went on to okay, let's look at the structure, sparring, etc. That he wants his uh, students, he he has an emphasis on uh, positional sparring, and that makes sense. I right? like this man. I, it, it makes I sense. I like this man because as you've said in the gym many times, and you know this is echoed amongst some of the greats, like Danaher, is if you are working on a position, say you're Gordon Ryan, and you are working on back escapes. How often does Gordon Ryan get his, get his back, back taken in in like at a high level in a regular open role? Exactly. If he's training hard, how often is someone going to be able to take his back? Fucking never. So how's pretty, he going to get better rare. at it? Exactly. Therefore, positional sparring. Yeah, I've uh, yeah I I remember when I first moved back to Brazil and um you know and I met and became friends with 
the, some of the now current highest level Australian guys like Levi Jones Leary and mm. like um, or when you came back Ari, from Brazil, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember arguing with them like we were all brown belts and purple belts at the time. And I remember arguing with them being like, man, like specific training is the best. Like mm. you have to do specific. Yeah. And then them essentially saying it's, you know, it's useless and a waste of time. Like why? Because like the, you know, the, the match is like won or lost in the, the guard or guard pass or whatever. And I was like, that's oh, like fucking makes no sense. And no, it doesn't. You're right. Because I got your back, John. Yeah. Just for all the people who doubt your knowledge of jujitsu, I got you. <laughs> well, if Adam says yeah, it's right. Yeah. <laughs> no. Well, no. yeah, I mean, well, Anthony, one of our students, was like the the inverse of that, the seatbelt. Oh right? yeah, Anthony had been arguing with me about seatbelts for months. Yeah. You know, saying that they're useless and shit, slip off, and then as soon as John said they're okay, he came back from the seminar being like, "So John said they're cool, so you know, <laughs> yeah. no, I'm cool with seatbelts now." Oh, shout out to Anthony. <laughs> yeah, but I'm I, not saying John doesn't know more than me. Yes, but, you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, no, that that's really interesting though. Is his emphasis on specific training and how important it is and the why. Why is it important, Adam? The specific why training. Why is this important? Yes. I'll tell you why, right? Because like one, like you said, because if we look at it like if you're the top dog mm. in the gym, so to speak, how are you going to get better at bad positions if, you know, because in your regular roles it's probably never going to happen, right, that people will get there. But it's also just – increasing your number of repetitions statistically. Yeah, so let's say let's say it's the opposite. Maybe I want to get better at submitting you mm. from when I take your back, right? And even if I'm better than you, let's say we're both black belts, so it's not like it's a black belt versus a white belt. It's still, you know, not like I'm instantly going to take your back, okay? So you and I are training and I want to get better at finishing from the back and we do a five-minute roll and I don't make it to your back. Mm. Where I got zero attempts or maybe I make it to your back, but then you instantly escape and then I don't get you to your back again in the role. So I got one attempt, but when we do specific training, we, I don't know how the time limit John does, but we usually do three minutes on top mm. or three minutes attacking, three minutes defending, whatever the position is, you know? So in three minutes I get uninterrupted attempts at finishing your back and if whether if it fails, I get to reset and try again. If it succeeds, I get to reset and try again. So I get multiple repetitions and attempts at the exact same thing. You know, it's um, you, you're just removing some variables that get in the way of of you perfecting a certain move. It become maybe be similar to um, the things that surfers can now do and get good at with the yeah. ability to practice in a wave, wave pool, pools, yeah. you know, like they have, they've taken out the, the variable of, and the inconsistency of the waves and they get the same thing over and over and they can try and try and try and try. And then once they can get it in a very repeatable controlled manner on the exact same wave, right. Then they can add in the variability of, you know, it actually happening in the ocean. Mm. Maybe that's a silly analogy. No, Maybe it's, a brilliant it's not, analogy. but you know, it's no, great. S- specific training. And I always say to my students as well, because sometimes it's like a, a bit of a, a line or a disconnect into when you should be embracing your competitiveness, right? So sometimes in training, you know, 
I'll want to see my students, man, don't even concede a fucking advantage. Like, let's go. This is comp roles. Like, we're trying to replicate this. Like, let's go. Mm. Whereas sometimes you're, you need to be okay with your failure and regression. So, you know, let's say we're looking at attacking from the back again and we're doing specific training. Okay, like maybe I do just want to get better at the move that I'm already good at, you know, but it's also the time to to try new moves. Like, you know, let's say you and I, perfect example, a black belt and a blue belt, we're doing specific training, you on my back. Of course, like the competitor in me doesn't want to get submitted, but I also have an uninterrupted opportunity to try new back escapes. And if they fail, who gives a shit? No one is looking around going like, oh my God, like that black belt's terrible. He got subbed by a blue belt. And even if they are, they're obviously uneducated about what's taking place at that current moment, you know? And I always go back to crediting like um, Bernardo Faria when I give these types of examples. Like, man, he used to lose in air quotes in the gym all the fucking time because it was training and he was trying new things. Like he essentially had his gym, his like training gym game and his competition game, you know, and he's a different animal when he was competing, right? And, you know, so easier said than done, I think, especially if you're a natural competitor, easier said than done to be willing to lose to someone you shouldn't lose to. But, yeah, like you have an opportunity to, to yeah, you could just choose to, repetitively do the same escape or submission that you know that you can hit 99% of the time or you could take the opportunity to get better and who cares if they escape your back control you get another chance because it's specific training I struggle with this a little bit right? even if even you're those. doing comp roles and I say guys it's like we're trying to replicate comp roles like on, yeah. I, I did it this morning with some people they were doing because two of the students this morning are like, oh, I want to do the competition in March. I'm like, okay, good. Let's go. Let's do some specific stuff, blah, blah, blah. And so I said, okay, we're going to do six-minute rounds, but I want you guys, I want you to leave, like, yes, you're still training partners. So when I say leave it all on the mat, I don't mean hurt each other. Like obviously still if you get a sub, give each other time to tap and, you know, but you've competed. Think about in training when we do a six minute round and I'll usually give you guys one, maybe one and a half minutes rest between the rounds. And you'll typically, you know, quite easily go and do the next round. All right. Imagine if a comp, if you only got one minute between matches, you fucking can't, right? You just give up. You need way more time than that to recover. So I essentially said to them, guys, six minute rounds. If after the minute rest, I said, you're going to get more than a minute rest. But I said, if after a minute of rest time, I look over and you're already ready to go, that tells me you didn't, you didn't try very hard in that six minute role. Of course. Well, the skill we, differential was too high. <laughs> yeah, of course, we can't add in the adrenaline and anxiety that yep. comes with competition. And equal weight, equal skill, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But there was um, right at the start, one of the guys, um, and I said, I'm going to be counting points as well. This was Guy as well. So, you know, mm. a bit more sort of standard points that I was looking at. Mm. And right at the start, got the guy in a triangle but couldn't finish it. The guy escaped. And then I was really rooting for the other guy to win points wise, but he didn't, right? It went the full six minutes and the guy who attacked the triangle at the start still won on points at the end, but I really wanted him to lose to learn a valuable lesson. I said, imagine if you went and did a comp, you had someone in a triangle for like a minute, they escaped and then you lost the match. You would be like, I fucking had him in a triangle. You know, and this is a very important competitiveness 
com- competition mentality to have as well. Like if you're in a comp and you take someone's back, you best fucking finish that man. Fuck dude. Like you don't want to, you don't want to do all that work to take someone's back just to have them escape, you know? Yeah. And I oh. learned this the hard way in, in competition as well as in training. Yeah. So, you know, there's specific training is really great for helping you like learn these things, like different structures to training have different whys. Yeah. Different, right? different, like wise. and different reasons, and different way, why. and different ways you should approach them. Yeah, you know, I my last comp, it was the, the it was a round robin, so it was the last round robin. Took this guy's back in the first twenty seconds, had him in a deep fulcrum choke. He was gurgling, he escaped, and I lost. Infuriating, right? I I have not stopped thinking about that that one match with this one guy. I've memorized his name. I'm going to say it, <laughs> but I, I know where you live, no. but I've been keeping an eye out for him next time he competes. It's I, one I just want to, I just want to. Not because you have something personal not, against him. Well, it's just, he's maybe the, a little bit, but yeah. no, nothing against him as a, as a person, as a, as a, I'm sure but like him as best a, someone you competed against. Exactly. I need, revenge. I yeah. need to roll again because I t- like easily took his back. had him in a deep fucking fog. He was literally gurgling in my ear and, f- uh, we, we could go into details of technique or why it happened, what I should have done, blah, blah, blah. I've thought about that a million times. But the fact of the matter is he escaped and fucking beat me. Yeah. And yeah, it should never have happened. So, um, yeah, I feel you. Yeah. I can't remember how I got on this tangent. Specific training. Yeah. I know that's where we started. I don't know how I got to talking about the guys that I was training this morning. But anyway, like specific training is – Super, super crucial, right? Different ways that you structure things in a class mm. achieve different different goals and there's different reasons why you do them. Yeah. But yeah, specific training is crucial. But yeah, going back to what I say, be willing to, you know, yeah, you might be choosing that time to refine what you're already really good at, but it's uh, also yeah. an opportunity to try to, new stuff. To, to, to try new stuff and fail and yeah. you know. I struggle with this in regular rolling when it's not necessarily competition. I have been like trying different things with my guard, et cetera. And then it hasn't happened often, but a couple of times, some of the guys have been like, you know, hit me up after like, what's going on? Like, are you injured? Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, it's kind yeah. of like a kick in the balls. Like, um, you know, like, oh, I could tell that wasn't, you know, your normal, normal game or whatever. And, and there's like, always, oh, yeah, trying there's, stuff I mean, and rah, rah. last night, for example, we trained and it wasn't mm. specific training, but I- You were trying new things. I specifically, wasn't even necessarily new, but it was specifically- I, you know, to put it in a nutshell, I was just specifically only looking for inside and outside heel hooks, right? As all, all I was looking for and some specific like leg positioning and stuff. Mm. And I rolled with you twice, Anthony and Olic. So I had four rolls with three different people and I wasn't able to do what I was trying to do, what mm. I wanted to do against any of you. And, mm. you know, I said at the end of class, I said, guys, there's always, even if there's, belt discrepancies there's always something you can work on be trying to do and mm. i said you three over there are cool but kieran anthony and Ollie, you can go fuck yourselves <laughs> i hate you i couldn't i wasn't able to do what i was trying to do yeah. and you know so yeah it's all always can be a little bit frustrating to lose or fail at anything but yeah, I mean, you learning. know what they say you only lose if you lose the lesson yeah <laughs> which is actually a very great and valid yeah. uh, saying but yeah so the next question that was asked uh, that I wanted to talk about was, you know, this one's 
predominantly for you, grappling for old people. Oh, yes. <laughs> I do like to grapple old people. So there was this guy who was like, uh, I think he was about 38 or something, and he's like, oh, for, for us older guys, I'm 38, approaching 40. And then John and fucking uh, Luke Martin were like, whoa, 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 fucking old. What are you talking about? Just It was funny. Anyway, had to be there. Luke's like, yeah, I got the testosterone of a 22-year-old. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's not go there. <laughs> but uh, John, uh, anyway, so the question was like, okay, how should you approach training as an older person? Um, and John's response was really interesting. He said pretty much for a certain, like for a certain, um, you know, consideration, you need to suck it up. You need to suck it up and embrace the fact his literal words were something along the lines of a degree of mental fortitude is required. <laughs> and he, like you gotta, you gotta harden up a little bit. You know, if you're, you're, yeah. if you're old, shit's going to hurt. You know, there's things you can do to take care of your body. There's supplements you can take. There's nutrition. There's recovery. He mentioned sleep. Make sure you're getting sleep. Recovery is important. Uh, you know, mobility is important. Doing all these things to support your your chosen hobby is important, particularly more important as you age. But at the same time, you know, in John's words, you need to suck it up. You know, you need more mental fortitude. But he also said on the flip side of that, be aware. Don't let your mental toughness on the other side of the coin. Don't let your mental toughness destroy your body. Particularly when you are, you know, if you're used to being, if you have a rock solid mind, you've trained a lot of sport, you've done a lot of sport like growing up or like through your youth or whatever, and then you found jujitsu, whatever the, the case may be. Don't let your mental fortitude destroy your body for no reason, no good reason, particularly as you age. So he's saying, you know, you have to suck it up, but on the other side, don't be an idiot and don't wreck yourself. Yeah, and man, I think sometimes people, this isn't necessarily targeted towards older grapplers, but maybe more just newer grapplers, which is, <laughs> I find it weird that people don't understand that anything requires a physical cost, you know? So mm. any unless you're literally like in a coma, anything you do, costs something so even yeah Yeah. reading a book costs you mental fatigue Mm. playing guitar can leave you with sore fingers and wrists from it being like your wrist being in the same position the whole time okay you know playing the violin can give you a sore neck from holding the violin like and sometimes i find that people start jujitsu and they get the tiniest little like bump bruise sore ache and it's kind of like, imagine if you picked up skateboarding and got upset because you grazed your knee. Mm. Well, dude, you've started a sport that requires you to fall over on concrete all the time and have a piece of wood slam into your shins occasionally. Like, I mean, like fucking shit happens. So like sometimes you're going to be sore and it comes at a physical cost, you mm. know, like go do an occasional day at an indoor rock climbing gym and tell me your fingers aren't going to be wrecked and sore mm. and cut and whatever the next day. Obviously someone who climbs a lot will have all the calluses and what that takes time, you know, like, so maybe a slight off topic, but it was just fresh in my mind. Cause sometimes I have people be like, Oh, but like essentially saying, but don't get the boo boo. Like, oh, <laughs> fuck bro. <laughs> yeah. Go sit on the couch and blow your back out then. <laughs> And the final point that John mentioned uh, was he, he made a big- sorry, TRT. Well, you did mention TRT, actually. <laughs> um, I wasn't going to talk about it, but um, he did say that, oh, you know, some people say that you you have to roll with everyone. You have to say yes to everyone. It's a respect thing, rah, rah, rah. And he said, nah, fuck that. Pick your training partners. 
particularly as you age, pick your training partners. Like, yeah. w- is it a good idea for you to roll with the 50, with the guy, like the 20 year old with 50 pounds on you, the ex rugby player that's fucking, you know, pinning his ass with testosterone every weekend? No, yeah. you probably shouldn't. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And I, um, yeah. And I think that as, as that sentence on its own, great advice. I think con- contextually, if we give it more context, um, you know, is also going to depend on on your gym. So, like that, you might be at a gym that that three hundred pound ex you know rugby player who's on testosterone and wants to be the world champion or whatever, and you're the you know you're the hundred and fifty pound female white belt. You know that dude might be very lovely and very willing to have a chilled flow roll with you, right? Mm. Like, I mean, so it's not as simple as saying or you well, might you break can't. your legs, yeah, right? <laughs> you know, so. Uh, obviously it's going to depend on the environment mm. in your gym, the relationship with your training partners. But I also think as well, your instructor or coach is, is a good guide as well. So sometimes I'll see students be like, oh, I don't want to roll with that person, but it's because they've been a pussy. I'm like, no, nah, man, you're going with him or you're going with her opposed to it being like, oh, I don't want to go with them because I get hurt or I get injured or whatever. I, I think I have a good, gauge on whether my students uh like i'll always put their safety above everything else but i think i can also tell when my students are just being soft and it's like dude like what do you mean you don't want to roll with that dude you're a purple belt he's a white belt and you're 40 kilos heavier what do you mean like fucking let's go like what are you doing like let's go be scared for (laughs) you know so yeah yeah i've had people turn down roles and i mean not often, so I remember it when it happens, but I've never been offended. So Yeah. I mean Yeah. Pussies. <laughs> next. Okay, so the next question um was now this one's more of a oh, you know, what's going on with New Wave team? Uh he was asked about New Wave Jiu Jitsu and whether or not the uh some of the key competitors there, the the key guys there are going to be doing anything in the gi this year. And breaking news, it's not that breaking, but Gordon Ryan will be will be competing in the gi toward the end of 2023. That is what he said. Gordon Ryan towards will be competing. End. So that means he won't do Worlds. Toward the end. Yeah. And I think it has something to do with his deal that he signed um, with Flow Grappling. Right. So okay. he signed a million-dollar deal. Um, where Gordon Ryan, I don't know the details of the the deal. I don't think anyone but Flo Grappling and Gordon Ryan, I think Danaher knows a little bit about the details of, of whatever, but it involves something to do with the gi, I think. I think that's right. where this is coming from. So it I will mean, be on Flo Grappling. I said ages ago, whether you like Gordon or not, whether you like his online content or not, it's very hard to fault his jujitsu. Mm. And even he said like, oh, you know, people came out saying – you know, if you take heel hooks out, I can't win. He's like, then I went and won no gear worlds before you were allowed to heel hook, right? You yep. know, uh, at IBJJF competitions. And, yep. You know, and I've always said, man, like, I'd love to see, even though I don't like all his like online trash talk and all that sort of stuff, he is just so good at jujitsu. And I would love to see him go and win, uh, the gi worlds yeah. just to be like, fuck all you dudes. Like he you can't, re- unfortunately, because he will get flagged for PEDs. 
if yes, he doesn't he cycle would. off correctly. Yeah, but then, you, I'm sure well, he could. But I mean, you just have to cycle off. Like Kynan just won the Euros. Yeah. <laughs> oh wait. Oh no. Wait. No. Kynan's clean. That's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. He's, like he's all you got to do is cycle off yeah, correctly. Yeah, 100%. Right. Like so. Yeah. It's not easy. It's it, sorry. It's not difficult to. Uh, they don't have a testing pool. It's not like a full. You know, yeah, Wada yeah. slash Usada run or. Program it's just pee in the cup and if it's a intelligence test as they say <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, how dumb are you yeah um, yeah so another another interesting thing about the gi in new wave Giancarlo Bedoni will be kidding will be competing in the gi this year as well he has expressed that he wants to compete I think he's competing at Worlds well, correct me if I'm wrong right but I believe isn't Giancarlo actually a lepre a Lucas lepre yeah yeah, yeah, yeah he is so he would have trained in the um, 100 so that's the not for years it's not like he's know? a no gi guy yeah but and he would have he would have competed in the gi yeah before oh yeah you know? like obviously now he's the superstar exactly yeah. yeah and speaking of if you don't know Giancarlo has a YouTube channel. And he has started posting regularly there again because he, he has some videos, I think, pre-ADCC. Um, but now he's posting regularly to his YouTube channel. I'm pretty sure it's just called Giancarlo Bedoni oh, on get YouTube. On that shit. Type it in. It's it's awesome. His latest video is, funnily enough, something that we've mentioned already in this episode, is how to study instructionals. So it's how, how to learn and concepts around learning. It's it's about a 10-minute video. It's that really syncs good. up with his new instructionals that have come out. Exactly. Buy his instructionals and subscribe to his YouTube channel. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so shout out to Giancarlo. Love that guy. Anyway, um, he'll be competing. And Merigardley in – uh, Danaher's words has a master plan to compete in gi and no gi. So this year in 2023, expect a lot from Merigali. He's going to be fucking. Well, he's busy. already yeah. He's already a very well established gi. Yeah, gi of fighter. course. That's no surprise. Anyway. I've always said like I would love like I, you know, I would just like to see someone do the uber duber win everything in a year. Like, well, I mean, were they calling that now the the super super slam or whatever it is? The, yeah, I don't know. Like Cabrinha did the. The like the super, super grand, grand slam, slam or yeah. whatever, which was he won uh, Euros, Euros worlds. Pans, Worlds, Brazilian Nationals, yep. and um, and ADCC. That's huge. Right? Imagine, and I've said this what before. Could you add on, to that? Well, no, I've I've said this before previously on like um, on other episodes. Imagine if Gordon Ryan won uh, Euros, yeah, Euros Gi. Weight and absolute, right? Euros, no gi, weight and absolute. Pans, gi, weight, absolute. Pans, no gi, weight, absolute. Worlds, right? Jesus weight, Christ. absolute. You know, yeah. you are um, Brazilian nationals, weight, absolute. Brazilian nationals, no gi, weight, absolute. And ADCC. And then win no gi worlds as yeah. well, weight and absolute. Uh, sorry, okay. yeah, I said that. Imagine, imagine that. Like, so that's like. That could never be repeated. Yeah, so that's essentially the. So Euros, Gi, and, and no, so that's two championships and then Pans, another two, Worlds, another two, um, uh, Brazilian Nationals, another two. So ADCC. that's eight tournaments plus ADCC. And the super fight. Right, and the super fight, so 10. Yeah. And then you, and then if you say you're doing weight and absolute as, as well, like imagine that, that's essentially like 20, like the top 20 gold He's got medals to win all the brackets a, through that as well. That's like imagine insane. that. Imagine that would be yeah. like I'd love to see it just from a fan point of view. Like you'll never. Do I it. mean, the, well, but I mean the like take all the gear you want. The physical toll to do oh, that incredible, and, and just the mental the fortitude as yeah, well. Yeah, the like, mental side of it, the yeah. logistics that would go with it. But Jeez, anyway, pressure. Okay, um, I can until you do that, Gordon. Uh, I'm, yeah, <laughs> I'm doubting you, bro. You shit. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, speaking of Gordon, the next question uh, actually, Anthony, our boy, asked uh, Danaher about the 
what Danaher thinks of the Gordon versus Penner uh, rematch. For those that don't know, their their um, match last year, the no time limit match, um, it, this is a rematch to that because of the circumstances surrounding uh, Leandro Lowe's passing. Um, yeah, so if you're not aware, the match took place like the day after yeah. Leandro Lowe was, was murdered. So And was just a, you know, not going to whose fault it was, should it have got ahead, not gone ahead, but anyway... Yeah. Penner went ahead with the fight, but tried to change some details. Didn't have a halfway through the fight. Yeah, a lot just of essentially tapped out, being yeah. like, nah, man, Gave I'm up. done. Yeah. yeah. So the rematch, Danaher basically said that compared to their first match that was like six years before this uh, no time limit match, there's been like six months between the last no time limit and this current one that's coming up. Therefore, in Danaher's view, because they're both well-established, there's going to be no change in their technical ability. Their jiu-jitsu is not going to change. So we're not going to see anything from a tactical standpoint. What we will see is a strategic change, meaning that they're going to come in with a different overall game plan. So their techniques are the same, but how they implement those techniques is going to be different. Now, for those that aren't up to date with, you know, the current social media world of jiu-jitsu, Felipe Pena has been spending a lot of time with Andre Galvao at Atos. And even Craig Jones uh, dropped by to give them some bee cream. Did you see that? Fucking that is one of the funniest reels I've ever seen. If you don't know what to talk about, check out Craig Jones. Um, well, he posts a lot, so you'd probably have to scroll back a bit already because yeah, it's like it's a, fucking, a week old I, or so. But Man, it's so funny. It's so, so funny. funny. We, we won't do it justice by trying to describe it. But just look it up. You do yourself a favor if you don't know what we're talking about. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it's funny that John said – the only reason that Felipe is with Andre, it's not to do with any technical ability. And they previously have had a history of not even liking each other. And, you know, in John's sort of view, I don't think he said this explicitly, like he's got a lot of respect for Andre Gaval, but he said that Andre Gaval does not have the secrets to beating Gordon Ryan. Like he's not going to learn any like special technique to how to beat Gordon Ryan, what he's there for is the pharmaceuticals. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. But Which like- is... Very, very funny. And which, which yeah. you know, is not wrong, but also Probably like not. Gordon, it's not like Gordon's not on the gear either. Yeah, yeah. Well, but I think Gordon would probably be loving that you've got, you know, the last two guys to, you know, one, uh, two of the last, you know, few people to fight him. Yeah. As well as an ex Denaher yeah. member, it's like all Avengers. teaming up, yeah, yeah. yeah. like throw Nicky Rod, throw Nicky Rod in there yeah. too, and, <laughs> and you've kind of got like this whole super squad trying to train Panner up to beat Gordon, it's and never Gordon gonna... Gordon's ego would just be going, Foom, yeah, Foom, <laughs> Foom. Right. expanding by the yeah. second. But um, what Danaher thinks that he's going to be doing is pre- predominantly, obviously, uh, amongst like testosterone or whatever, and you know his, his standard uh, stack if you will, PEDs, he's going to be on EPO. So erythropoietin is a hormone produced by the kidneys that um, promotes or stimulates the production of red blood cells in the body. And red blood cells are oxygen-carrying blood cells. So basically, if you can stimulate more production of red blood cells, then you can have an increased oxygen-carrying capacity, therefore more endurance. This is similar to how- In layman's terms, a better gas tank. Exactly. So EPO is equals more gas tank. It's similar to how blood doping works, but through a different mechanism. Now, what's interesting there is, obviously I don't recommend EPO, that you know, side effects include blood clots and, and heart, uh, heart failure and death. So don't go taking that. But it is interesting that that 
falls into the whole strategy um, update for um, Penna to, to come in on, you know, with, with some conditioning training, you would assume, and, you know, maybe some pharmaceutical assistance to go the distance with, with Gordon. Um, yeah. So I think yeah. you're going to see a longer match maybe if Penna can, can take it there. Yeah. Be interesting to see. I mean, yeah, of Typically a very boring format for a spectator, no time limit, but yeah. here we are again. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> not, not rehashing that old, <laughs> yeah. old argument. And uh, um, I believe there was one more question. There is yeah? one more. All yes. Right, so the last go. one uh, that I wanted to talk about that he, that he spoke about, and I found this very interesting, was what Danaher thinks about the future of the sport jiu-jitsu in terms of uh, gi versus no gi, the old argument. Uh, and that was brought up. And – Dan has said something, you know, he mentioned some stuff that we already sort of everyone sort said, of knows. No, let me tell you, there's a system. There's a system. No, but he, he actually spoke about Why? IBJJF. And this is, I don't <laughs> think I've explained this to you yet. And this is what I wanted to bring up is he, he spoke about, uh, I think I did tell you. Anyway, IBJJF in Danaher's opinion is holding the sport back. It's keeping it at an amateur level. His whole goal for the sport is to do everything in his power to make the sport professional and make it mainstream. Because if the sport can trans, like convert from where it currently is to an amateur level sport to a professional sport and give more opportunities for more people to do nothing else but just train full-time and be full-time jiu-jitsu athletes, then that will elevate the sport. And that trickle-down effect will apply to everyone. And everyone that trains jiu-jitsu is going to receive the benefit of that evolution. Similar to what happened with MMA, mixed martial arts. So if, okay, yeah. If ADCC, uh, IBJ, if IBJJF is holding back the support, the yeah. sport, what's his solution? And so in what way is it holding back the sport? Excellent questions. We need to ask ourselves why. Yeah, why? <laughs> yeah. So the IBJJF, the, the way, an example of how it's holding the sport back is how they run their competitions. And a lot of competitors will complain or not complain, but voice this similar opinion. IBJJF charges people to compete. Yes, they do. And it's that format, that model that is never going to lead itself to be a professional organization. Because if a high level competitor needs to compete a certain amount of IBJJF competitions, then they, they need to pay all of those entry fees just to be able to compete. Yeah. No one's paying them to compete. They need to pay the organization to compete. And obviously your fees go toward, you know, holding the event or whatever. There's no prize money involved. Yeah. No one's, there's no money there. No one's paying them. There is money, but if you look at the Pareto principle, it's 80-20. So more than, I would say it's in this case, it's more like 95-5. That 95% of the money in jiu-jitsu is going toward the top 5% of competitors. There needs to be uh, an organization that is pushing it to be mainstream. One of the other big reasons uh, John pointed out that what's holding jiu-jitsu back is unfortunately our sport is set up in a way that if you take take gi worlds, for example, if you were hazard a guess at the percentage of people that watched gi worlds that didn't train jiu-jitsu, what would you put it at? Two. Yeah. <laughs> and those, those would be like fucking old mates' moms. Yeah. You know what I mean? They would be friends and family. Yeah, yeah. So if you take that out, it would be less than 1%. It would yeah. be like the diehard, you know, crazy fanatics that are really interested in um, jiu-jitsu or yeah, sport yeah, yeah. or whatever. Um, but it's it's barely any. 
the percent of, of the numbers that watched ADCC that didn't train jiu-jitsu uh, would, would probably be more like 15 to 20 uh, from yeah, the last. Maybe a little, yeah. Maybe a little bit less, even 10%. But the, the point is that the gi is too difficult to understand for people that don't train and it's boring. Even for people that train, not can be boring, I yeah. don't know that many people that sit down and watch all of uh, you know, gi worlds or whatever, or or Euros. Like you see snippets yeah. here and there. Like but not like not many people actually sit down and watch it. Even people that train jujitsu, because gi fights can be very boring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they can be. But they also can not be. Like look to last year's worlds with like, you know, uh Ty Ritolo and Mika Galvao. Well, that was like, that was fucking awesome. sick fight. That was a sick fight. But um yeah, good example. But there's, I mean, okay, I don't know whether he gave a clear solution or not. He alluded to one. Which, okay, go, go, tell me the solution. So first. he said that in order for this sport to breach this mainstream barrier that it's currently held back in, we need to see formats heading more toward ADCC and EBI. That is where the money is. So, for example, the fact that UFC has bought ADCC is brilliant for the sport. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One, it's more exciting for spectators. But two, it's more similar to MMA. So people that are on UFC Fight Pass, right, there's predominantly MMA fans because that's why you have UFC Fight Pass. When ADCC, the next ADCC rolls around, you're going to see way higher viewership and not everyone is going to explicitly be jiu-jitsu people. Yeah. So – this this is the solution I thought you were going to say and I just want to poke a few holes in it. I agree that there's more money in the format of um, uh, the format of kind of ADCC and, you know, who's number one and mm. those sorts of events rather than, you know, world's events or something like that. But that, that creates the problem of, okay, well, if IBJJF and organizations like it are holding the sport back, how do I get myself onto that card in the first place? Oh, is it, okay, are there just a bunch of trials, organization, things that I need to do? Okay, so uh, how do I get the experience to get good enough to win trials if all there is is trials. Oh, so I need more trials. Okay, so like at some stage it becomes, well, there's just regular competitions. Like if if IBJJF is keeping it at an amateur level, there needs to be an amateur league. That's yeah. right. There needs to be a feeder organization, yeah. right? Like no, no one goes, it's my first pro boxing fight and I'm headlining Madison Square Garden. No, like there needs like there's fucking amateur leagues and whatever. So – Okay, if you want to then call IBJJF an amateur league, call it an amateur yes. league, but then don't say it's holding the sport back. It's creating feeder athletes who are gaining the skills and experience to then go and win a, 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 a trials competition that will get them into ADCC. Like if you like, you can't just say events like ADCC, well, how the fuck do I get good enough to get into ADCC? Just, just – just win that one trials event that comes around every two years. Yeah. Fuck, bro. Like that's I think, no, right? And then I if think we, he's saying that. And then if we look at the 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 problem of paying to compete, mm. I mean that's been an argument for years, especially like bullshit that you're going to win world's black belt gold medal and like you don't even get your money back or anything. Ridiculous. Yeah. But that, that uh, 
I don't have an answer for that problem because at the end of the day when you look at the the spreadsheet of all the ins and outs of the amount of money made uh, through the event and the amount it costs to run the event, you got to pay all the refs, all the timekeepers, whatever you pay to hire a venue like that. I don't the know. and everything, right? yeah, yeah. Obviously, if we pick some stupid number and go, you know, at the end of the day, IBJJF walked away with a profit of $10 million. You'd be like, well, I don't know, right? Yeah. But, you know, you'd be like, okay, those numbers can be moved around to make it so at least whatever ranked athletes don't, or something, right? Mm. Something. Uh, But yeah, like, obviously, it would get to a point either way that, I mean, going doing some local competition here, they're not making a huge amount of money to host that event. Like, of course no. you have to pay to compete, you know? Of course, yeah. Like, so. But I think that you're, like, I, I don't think you would disagree with that. The, the IBJJF should stop doing competitions or their assholes for putting on competitions. I think the issue is that the highest level of IBJJF of Worlds has the same format. Yeah, it's, it's like a bit of, an amateur it's a bit, comp. It's a bit of a problem. Yeah, it's yeah, an yeah, amateur yeah. comp. Yeah. Like, the if they, if they, they had all, tiered they, systems yeah. within the organization, like, have those amateur that feed into the pro, but it's not like that. It's all amateur from from bottom to top. Yeah, it's a, and the growth of the sport is also making uh, like there's there's more black belts than ever. Back in the day, you didn't mm. have to score points. You could just yeah, be a black just belt up. and just go do worlds. Kind of like the colored belt system now. Yeah, you just right. Up. And then you know, and I've been saying for years, it'll probably get to a point where you'll need to score points as brown belt to go mm-hmm. to worlds because there's just getting more and more people. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like I don't know. Yeah, have another have another tier or yeah, have some sort of separation between the amateurs and the pros, you know, you could just to put an arbitrary line in the sand, you could essentially say, you know, the black belts are the pros and all the colored belts are still considered amateurs. Sure. Yeah. Right. So fuck, maybe at least make the pros have a different format where they don't have to pay and yeah. whatever, like make it a bit more prestigious. Like these are, you know, even change the way that, that uh, winning world championships as a team works at the Worlds. This has been known for years that Worlds as a team, like saying it's Alliance being 13 times world champion, Gracie yeah. Bar or Atos, right? Like it's been known for years that Worlds as a team is won and lost at the colored belts. So a, for those who don't know, a blue belt, white belts don't count. White belts count your people, your people, your people. Whew. Cover, cover my tracks first, right? But there's but, no such thing as a white belt world champion. Yeah, yeah. Like it's, it doesn't count towards the points for the team. A blue belt who wins gold at Worlds scores the same amount of points for his team as the black belt who won the absolute division gold, mm. right? Those two medals are worth the same amount of points for the team. So right? whoever Which, has the most numbers. To some degree, yeah. There are, you know, you can only have two competitors per division, like, you know, but still, you know. So a kind of – I agree with if we go into it in a bit more detail as to ways they're holding the sport back, mm. that could be one way, right? There's no real distinction between the professionals and the amateurs. No. But there does need to be – yeah, like you can't just go. It's just ADC and all this. Well, how? Yeah, how ADCC, do you, yeah. yeah. How do you well, feed into that? Well, the way you feed into that specifically with ADCC, and this it's is by my instructional. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is unfair because this is like brand new, just happening this year. ADCC has started an amateur league, so they are having hundreds of competitions held around the world, and they are going to feed into trials. 
and they and trials is going to obviously feed into ADCC itself. So, do you need to pay to compete? Of course, in the amateur it's, league? A, it's an amateur league, right? Yeah, so, yeah. You, know. you you still need to pay, um, but and that that's the thing, right? You still need to pay to compete trials, yeah. but if you win. You, you obviously get your money back and you get a, I think there may be a cash prize, I'm not sure. But anyway, you, you get a ticket paid to Vegas. Yeah, and then you don't have accommodation, to pay to compete obviously. at ADCC. Yeah. yeah, and then you have you don't get paid. The same way, I mean, I guess if we just, just to put it in a nutshell, imagine if you have to fucking pay to compete at UFC. Exactly. You know? It's the same. But obviously there's organizations and smaller fight things you do to, to get to the point. A bit different, mm. like UFC is kind of like you – get scouted or yeah. you win a reality TV show like The Ultimate Fire or, or whatever. Yeah. But yeah, there's no trials. But, but that's yeah, the same as how know. it works with UFC. You don't, you know, you don't, um, you have to make a name for yourself. You get scouted. That's yeah, how you yeah. end up in the UFC. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if in the next, like in five years from now, we're having a conversation and because like UFC has bought the, the streaming rights to ADCC, I wouldn't be surprised if in the future, they set up a grappling league through the banner of ADCC with the same format and it's similar to UFC, how they have what, yeah. what who's number one tried to establish yeah. but sort of didn't really, it sort yeah. of failed. And and I wouldn't be surprised because if it has the name ADCC, it has the weight behind it that it is recognized as the premier uh, jiu-jitsu league. So if you rank number one at X amount of weight um, on the ADCC ranking list, then you are number one in the world. Similar to like in UFC, yeah. You know, if yep. you're number one middleweight in UFC, you're probably the best middleweight in the world, despite the fact that there's Bellator, of, there's, yeah, that's right. You know, yeah. there's um, one FC, there's all these others, and I think that we need that. We also may see ADCC um, be competed in a cage as well to make it. Yeah, I was about to say that, like like one FC is doing, because other fans from MMA are used to seeing that and want to see it, because yeah. fans for MMA are becoming more and more educated with the ground game and grappling through many different reasons. But I think that we yeah, and they don't want to see, see the constant rolling out of bounds and the fight stopping. I don't stopping think anyone wants to see and, that. I, I support you know, it. Fuck it. Keep yeah. it going. Put it in the cage. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, a, a lot to unpack. I mean, even one of those, the the technique part of this episode, obviously a bit bit hard to go over uh, verbally. But even just every single one of those questions in the Q and A that yeah. was asked to John, you can see how easily he could take up 10, 15 minutes talking about it. Yeah. You know, we could have done a whole episode probably about each question. Yeah. You know, lesson structure. There's yeah. a fucking episode. Yeah, 100%. Fucking, oh, you shit. know, give us no gi. Right, right There's an there. episode <laughs> that we've done and can do again because yeah. the argument kind of keeps evolving. Yeah. We've got a reverse panner. Yeah. You know, steroid abuse, you know. Yeah, I nearly Depression. asked him about that. Fucking hell. A lot going on there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, closing thoughts or yeah. a recommendation or how many stars out of five for like the John Denner? Six out of five. Six out of five stars. I think my biggest key takeaway from the seminar, with the exception of like, how shit your current jujitsu coach. <laughs> yeah, tell me about it. <laughs> He's terrible. No, He's um, definitely not. There was a lot of similar things that you both, you know, doing. Um, I think that my the biggest sort of like you know the feeling, biggest difference between me and John. You got hair. I'm, I was about to say I'm growing my hair out. <laughs> if anyone watching the video version is looking at me going like, "Fucking Adam needs a haircut," bro. I'm currently growing my hair out along with my son. I'm about to go through an 18-month phase of looking like you need a haircut. Really? 
Oh, bro, I hate my hair. Like, what? Actually, I say I hate my hair long. I don't know if hair changes as you get older, but I've essentially rocked a buzz cut for more or less the last 15 years. Right, so you're growing it out. So, yeah, and I'm not growing it out where, oh, I'll go get a haircut, clean it up and keep growing. I'm just going to grow it until pretty much until my son tells me to cut it, I guess. Yeah, right. I don't know. He's, go, only, he's only three, so. Yeah. <laughs> Ruled by a three-year-old. Yeah. Let's go. That's um, my life. Yeah, but I, th- I think just closing thoughts on the Danaher thing, it was, um, it was what I expected and wasn't at the same time. I think that I underestimated his ability to communicate concepts and how I would take those away. Um, I thought I'd get more like I'd take more of the techniques away, but which I did. I did learn a lot, but I mean, I have done other seminars with other very famous jujitsu people and the comparison is chalk and cheese. This is so much better than anything I've, I've seen in terms of seminars before, but it's an unfair comparison because he's considered to be the world's greatest grappling coach in the world. I said that twice, but the greatest grappling coach in the world, best people, blah, blah, blah. Um, he's got a lot to teach, but at the same time, what, what else I realized, and I told you this, you know, off air, is he's just a person. He's just a guy. He's just a fucking dude. He's just a dude, man. He's oh, just a man. fucking dude. Like, <laughs> that reminds me, bro, like one of the guys at the gym, I'm not going to say his name. He does listen to the the, the podcast every now and again. So um, he'll may, maybe he'll bring it up to me in the gym because he'll realize I'm talking about him. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he's going to the UFC that's in Perth um, in February, nice. yeah. right? And he managed to get backstage passes or whatever, what? which is sick. <laughs> but dude, was so far, I've never seen like someone look so like from my point of view, cringy, embarrassingly Star Trek because because he was like, I'm gonna get backstage pass. I might get to meet Craig Jones. Just like oh, Craig. <laughs> he was like he he could he almost Craig couldn't Jones, like yeah. he almost couldn't like structure his sentence. That's and crazy. He was looking like awkward in his face. I'm like, yeah. I was like, they're just fucking people, man. Like, yeah, that's uh, the thing, man. Like, I, go, I, like I spoke to John. I met him. Go I, meet I don't know fucking Brad Pitt yeah. or Mike Tyson. They're all just people. Yeah, I mean, shit. I because I've brought this up to you before. We've spoken about this, and you've had this opinion. Like, uh, you know, they're just people because you've met a lot of you know very famous jujitsu people. Um, and I've always been like, oh, I don't know, rah, 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 I'd be starstruck. But when I met him, I mean, yeah, I thought he was a nice guy, blah, 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 but I wasn't like awestruck, you know. I told him about my YouTube channel that I make videos about him taking the piss and stuff and he thought it was funny. You know, I just had a chat with him and he's a dude. He's, a, he's just, just a guy. just a person, man. Yeah, I, don't, I mean, I guess I, I, you know, I get that some people get starstruck, but I, it doesn't make sense to me. No, I, mean, I get I, I'm the, more on the your side now. The only time I've ever even approached a – celebrity was when I still worked for Alliance and I was at the Masters Worlds in Vegas. Mm. And if you don't know the Masters, it's kind of like a five-day convention. There's all booths set up. So Alliance had a booth yeah, and, really and the, the Hibero brothers had a booth set up. Like uh, Fuji had a booth that Travis Stevens was at the whole time. So mm. anyway, the Hibero brothers had a booth set up and, you know, it was just like Shanji and, and Salo hanging out there most of the time. And, you know, so I'm walking back and forth past them like, all day five, five, for, for five days. And at one point, like when his booth wasn't busy, I just stopped and said hello. And, hey, you know, Salo, just, my name's Adam. Just wanted to say hello. I'm, you know, one of Fabio's black belts. I work for Alliance. And, you know, I know that, you know, you and Fabio go way back. And just wanted to say hello. Nice to meet you and blah, blah, blah. And that was it, right? That was mm-hmm. the whole conversation. That's the closest I've ever been to being like, ooh, a celebrity. Yeah. But like, 
I would be so embarrassed to ever kind of ask someone for a photo or something. I, I mean, if I'm at a seminar, I don't mind it. Cause it's like, I hey, love we're, getting photos we're here for this occasion. Yeah. Right. You know, I and, paid 160 and, bucks to get a photo yeah, with Dan. And okay. it's also a memory that you can show to people. Yeah. Right. So that's fine. But when it's like you see a famous person in the street and people go up, like, I find that like, dude, I don't get it. Leave him alone. Nah, I definitely would get a photo. I'd <laughs> be <laughs> that cringe dude. No, but I, I totally get it. He's, you know, I thought I'd be like, you know, awestruck by him or whatever, or, or I, I didn't know how I'd react because he's probably the highest, like, I don't know, most well-known jiu-jitsu person I met, I'd, I'd say comfortably. And uh, yeah, he's just the, just the guy, nice guy. Yeah, just a fucking person, yeah. bro. But uh, yeah, d- definitely anytime he does a seminar again that I have the ability to go to without a, without a question, I'm going to it. Yeah, maybe I'll go next time. Yeah, hopefully they do arm drags. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, guys, hope you enjoyed the episode. Would have been nice if we had rashes, if uh, I thought of it or if you remembered. Yeah. But in <laughs> slight Denaher fashion, one of our longer episodes. So Yes. You know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but, guys, as always, thank you for listening. Uh, if you need more, Instagram at beyondjujitsu underscore podcast. If you're, you know, wherever you're listening to the episode, Spotify, mm-hmm. YouTube, whatever. Patreon's there. Thank All you. our links are in the link tree and in the description. Mm-hmm. But uh, next week we're going to be talking about the upcoming Subversion event, which is Equinox. Yeah, Equinox is what it's called for the international listeners. It's like a local who's number one, you know. Mm. It's just uh, pre-made matches, Mm. right? Everyone has their their one match. Awesome production value. Yeah, so uh, we're talking about that next week. Then after that we will be episode 130, next Mm. Q&A, Ask a Black Belt. Yeah, get your questions in. Send your questions in, please. Audio question, you know where you can find the links. Guys, thank you so much for listening and until next time. See ya. Yeah.